The pantheon of Hollywood legends looms large over the history of cinema. Orson Welles, Howard Hawks, John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock. Names such as these have come to define the pioneering image of the old American film industry. Their works remain eternal, etched in stone as the insurmountable criterion of the medium. But their world has long since passed, washed away by the tides of further innovation and social evolution. In the late 1960s, the studio system under which these titans prospered collapsed, paving the way for a new generation to helm the easel of America's cinematic influence. The 1970s were a boon for cinema as a medium of artistry, blazing a new trail of unbridled creativity as the new Hollywood generation sought to abandon most of the conventions established by the old guard auteurs. But just as the American public was preparing to disown these legends of old, an ardent cinephile came forth to champion their legacy. Much like the French critics turned new wave phenoms, Peter Bogdanovich was a student of the American classics. He grew up in the cinemas, building up an encyclopedic knowledge of the movies from which he would later draw upon to inspire his own career. Beginning as a historian, Bogdanovich expanded his knowledge of the medium even further, chronicling the words of these directors as gospel through various books, interviews, essays, and documentaries. Taking their sagely advice as inspiration, Bogdanovich carried the torch of the old guard into the new generation. At first, he considered himself a failure, falling short of making his own Citizen Kane by the age of 25. Instead, it was at 27 when he got his first big break, working for Roger Corman's low-budget outfit, first by recycling old footage to make a new film, before then incorporating some discarded work into a story of his own creation. Assigned with the task of building a new Boris Karloff project around the few remaining days the elder horror icon owed to Corman, Bogdanovich put his filmic insights to task, blending the cultural cachet of the Frankenstein star with the contemporary horror of mass shootings for compounded impact. Targets made enough of an impact within Hollywood to get Bogdanovich some notice, establishing some important connections and opening the way for a much larger opportunity as his next undertaking. The last picture show made Bogdanovich a bona fide sensation, solidifying the young upstart's reputation as an inspiring new talent comparable to the very masters he admired and studied under when they made their debuts. Picture Show was a dour drama about the disparity and angst concentrated amongst the youth of a small Texas town in the 1950s. The bleak black and white cinematography and pervasive sense of malaise resonated deeply in 1971 garnering Bogdanovich's sophomore work great critical and audience praise alike. Before the notices were even in for his second film, though, Bogdanovich was already working on his next feature, a vivid and characteristic homage to the slapstick and screwball comedies of his youth. What's Up, Doc? is maybe the most characteristic film of Bogdanovich's whole career, wielding the savor of homage and influence as a powerful tool of nostalgic revival while simultaneously modernizing its universal appeal. Thanks to his unwavering direction and the indelible charm of its box office stars, Bogdanovich secured his status as the hottest name in Hollywood and the additional certainty of successive successes. In some ways, Paper Moon was Bogdanovich symbolically coming back to the well. It was his second film in black and white, his second period film, and his second teaming with leading actor Ryan O'Neill. Although it may have seemed like Bogdanovich was losing his flair for originality, Paper Moon proved to be a heartwarming combination of both the dramatic and comedic skill set exemplified in by his previous two films. 
the story of an unscrupulous con man and his surrogate daughter traversing the Depression-era South became Bogdanovich's third smash hit in three consecutive years. The world was all but his for the taking. With a personal stake in the company that financed the film, it meant millions in personal revenue, too. All of this success and glory would prove to be fleeting, though. Just as quickly as his self-assurance rose him to the top, arrogance would bring him crashing back down in life and in the movies. Welcome back to the Twin Geeks 148. We're here, just David and I. We're covering new director now. You've just heard his beautiful intro for Peter Bogdanovich. Thank you. You know, uh, the other week before I sat down to watch any of our uh, first four Bogdanovich films here, uh, popped in an old favorite to watch. Pulled out my DVD for Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise. Ooh. And uh, I wanted to go uh, hit the play button on the menu, but first I saw there was a, an introduction there by none other than our very man today. And of course, of course, I was enticed to watch it again. Because um, his knowledge of film and the way he talks about movies is just so um, charismatic. It's, it's, it's so uh, infectious, too, is the big thing. And you really feel above even, you know, many of his contemporaries, many of the same people he made movies alongside that he loved movies more than anyone that he had, his love for movies was so whole and so pure and so and you know pervasive too and he's such a pivotal you know, well of knowledge with how much he garnered through all the various you know people he spoke with you know all the old hollywood icons he interviewed and chronicled and befriended even you know many of whom helped to give him inspiration who he worked alongside and who work he lifted up to once he had the power to do so. He began somewhat academically, but also as a cinephile first and then a director second. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so it was such sad news last month when we, when we heard of his passing, then obviously it's, a, it's an inevitability. The man had a, an incredibly lucrative, career, lengthy career, full, and a full life, too. His, his life is almost, you know, a, <laughs> fit for telling as a movie in its own right. As his well life too. should be a movie at some point. If it wouldn't seem disrespectful, I would hope that it would be handled well. I don't know who would even, we'd want would, to do that. But. It would just be hard, I think, because movie-wise, I, I think it would lean itself less because it's it's very chapter-esque, his, his life is. It unfolds. Uh, over somewhat long periods of time, as as we'll see, and, and I think going through his career here will will demonstrate that, and that there are these different chapters, these different eras of his both his personal life and his work, uh, and and the beginning here is is definitely probably the one people are most familiar with. For those listening in, if if you've seen a Bogdanovich film, it's probably one of these for four. Yeah, this first four section, uh, extremely well covered and prolific on the internet. So uh, 
while we're not charting new ground today, I think the rest of the filmography um, that we'll lay bare in future episodes is pretty much uncovered. Uh, a lot of the made-for-TV movies not covered, the documentaries not especially covered in the sense of looking at the whole filmography. So yeah, uh, we'll I, stitch together a whole picture. That's something I'm very much looking forward to because that's a huge thing when it comes to covering Bogdanovich's life, despite how you know big and cinematic it is. Uh, there, there are parts of it people just don't tell that <laughs> yeah. haven't been told. Uh, you know, I, when TCM did their started their podcast series with an interview series with him, I was very excited and I was listening through. And you know, it, it's probably one of the great last chronicles we have of his life now from him. Uh, so definitely check that out if you, if you want to hear more about it. But at a certain point around the mid '80s, uh, they stop kind of yeah. telling his story and they and they kind of skip over the rest of it like kind of very you know lightly touching on a couple of movies he's made since then since the the late 80s 30 years you know we're, we're nearing 40 now of his life you know so about 35 years of films that still exist you know work that he still did that just isn't talked about at all so and and we're definitely talking about out them that was a huge reason for wanting to go forth with this not just to respect uh and you know honor the career of uh one of a, the most important new hollywood filmmakers but especially to cover the films that nobody's talked about before nobody's yeah. seen most people haven't i don't know anyone really who's seen any of those films or even some of the films from his late 80s um even his last film his his last uh narrative film in, in 2014 yeah, it'll be much. a lot of surprises ahead. I don't know if any of them will like weigh up with the some of the heavy hitters we'll cover today and uh, soon in the future, but uh, hoping to find some buried gems or at least interesting takes on things nobody's covered. Um, you should listen to the plot thickens, though. It is a <clears throat> it is a good capsule of that moment in his life. Um, and you can tell by the end of it, he, he seems to be a little more broken up as it goes on. It seems uh, almost pre-selective of him not to go past the 80s, right? Like, there seemed to be, like, a switch there at the end of the podcast. Like, that is the part he wants to uh, publicize. You, you have to wonder how much of it is, you know, on, on him not not wanting to speak too much about those films or other films, or and how much of it's about us as as the, the, the chroniclers, as the people who are interested in defining the Bogdanovich canon, not caring past the eighties, having, you know, moved on right. from him uh, flexibly. Cause one of the, the weird things I always find is that people fixate on his small role as a character, as a recurring character in the Sopranos as a highlight of his career that always comes up in, in like retrospective discussions of him, because that's how people of the nineties knew him is that he was the therapist on the Sopranos. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, it's such a huge show, and uh, the movies he was making at that point, you know, mostly made for TV movies. Maybe not a lot of people ever saw them anyway. Um, so it'll be interesting. It'll be uh, interesting. But today we're starting with the beginning of his career, skipping the one Corman uh, well, thing he put it, together. But that's not quite a movie, is it? Uh, no. So so there's a couple things he did. Um, his the very very start of his career was with Roger Corman. He met Roger Corman at a screening of a Jacques Demy film. And 
Corman knew of him from his writings, from the works he did for, um, you know, very, uh, um, the uh, New York Art Museum, I think. <laughs> well, whatever the name of that place is, you know, the very famous place that shows lots of movies. Mm -hmm. Anyway, he did a lot of writing for them uh, and a lot of other critical work, and that's how Corman knew him. And Corman asked if he wanted to come and work with him. He saw he shot second unit on Corman's The Wild Angels. Uh, he got roughed around by some real Hell's Angels on that movie, <laughs> which which was kind of his, uh, you know, starting off point. Uh, but then one of the other tasks that he was uh, given was he uh, was editing together footage from a Russian uh, sci-fi movie with um, some contemporary footage they shot with Mamie Van Doren and just kind of pieced together in the cheap Roger Cormany way film called Voyage to the Planet of the Prehistoric Women. Which and neither of us watched. No, because it's not a original movie, really. Yeah. You know, it's it's you know a, a Corman project where he's taken footage that he got from somewhere else and just kind of like attached on a little bit and moved on and, and, and sold it for a few bucks. You know? Kind of became an editor that was named director in a sense. Yeah. And that was around the same time, though, as he got his real genuine start from Roger Corman, which was a similar kind of project in conception, but uh, had a lot more opportunity for him to, um, you know, express himself and, and really write a story of his own. And that was Targets in 1968. And so as Bogdanovich himself tells the story, he, I do like watching him so much because he tells so many good stories about his career in, in similar ways. And, and it's always, it's, uh, he, he's a great storyteller about it. But so essentially what Targets is that Boris Karloff owed Roger Corman two days of filming mm -hmm. and he wanted uh, Bogdanovich to shoot new material with Boris Karloff for two days, about 20 minutes in total. Uh, and then he wanted him to use 20 minutes from a film Karloff had shot previously with Corman called The Terror. Uh, so that would be like 40 minutes in total there and then shoot for another two weeks about to get about an hour's worth of footage. So you got a full new movie here by putting all of that together. And all Bogdanovich had to do was write a story to go with all of that. And looking over the footage with his wife, Polly Platt, who was his main collaborator for the first, you know, big years of his uh, filmmaking career there, they watched the terror and thought it was terrible. <laughs> and that there was no way they could sell a Victorian gothic horror movie in 1968. And so Bogdanovich's idea as a joke initially was to say that he's going to start the movie with the end of the terror. And then the lights come up in a screening room and there's Boris Karloff sitting next to Roger Corman. He turns to him and says, Roger, that's the worst movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and then he thought, yeah, that wasn't actually so bad an idea after all. And that's basically how Targets begins. <laughs> yeah, that's essentially it. Um, I think like the third or fourth review on Letterboxd is like comparing it to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You could kind of get like that framework of film within a film and uh, working around like Hollywood's edges. It is Boris Karlov as Boris Karlov which is fun. Um, it's fun when he spats out like 
lines uh, gothic poetry mostly Poe. Um, right, because that's what Karloff was was famous for. He did uh, those cycle of Poe films, various yeah. Poe movies throughout his career. Yeah, and uh, there, there's a self awareness to it that's really great, and I think it works as a terrific swan song for Karloff's career. Karloff died only about a year after this. He was he was in very bad condition during the making of the film, but you never guess it necessarily while watching, except for when he walks, I suppose. Yeah. Because performance-wise, he's giving it his all, and really it's one of the the, the better demonstrations of his career. And the, the self-awareness and, and the, the kind of wry perspective that he gives to his own career through the character there is, is really terrific. And especially in the scripting there, the observations that Bogdanovich uh, allows through the characters about this... Um, ending of of the old hollywood kind of system and this this rising of a new era like just before we're like right in the mix of where new hollywood is about to be birthed from it doesn't quite exist yet it's it's starting to sprout but it hasn't come into its own yet where the new generational voice is steering the ship in american film industry it's not quite there yet and so the the need for that still exists and so there's a line from a character in the film notably played by Bogdanovich, who represents a youthful director. And he says, all the good movies are already made. Like, and he, and he laments that. And and that's a really poignant bit there, I think, in, in terms of really keying in on the time in which the film was made, because it does feel like what it is, the, that the American film system is just like, stop working. Like, it's it's, you know, you can't go any further with what they've done here. And so things need to be restructured from the bottom up and it's about to take place, but it's going to take people like Bogdanovich and like other contemporaries to come through in the early seventies there and just redefine the whole thing. There's only like a little bit of like that foundation there, like getting to like the grittier, like uh, realities and social horrors of the modern day uh, with the, with the mass shooter, which kind of roughly fits in with the whole horror concept as an actor and Hollywood and targeting people. it's a great idea, I think, this idea of let's juxtapose the horror of the old cinema, you know, this this kind of monster man in makeup, Bar- Boris Karloff himself, with the horror of now, the contemporary horrors of the 1960s, you know, unhinged mass shooters, you know, which are a very prevalent topic, very recurring, and about to be very prescient in 1968, especially the film ended up not really getting distributed because it came out in the year that Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. were assassinated. And so that's unfortunate for the movie's sake, but, you know, it's emblematic then of what was going on in the country at the time. And so how that tackling that subject could be very integral. Uh, the, The overall execution is another thing, though. I see why uh, it would draw parallels to like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with the obsession of Hollywood turning over once we uh, begin focusing on like the loss of Sharon Tate or once we start getting assassinations or uh, a public focus becomes like serial killers within the neighborhood as horror begins to reflect uh, soon after this. Um, there is a real turning point there uh, in what we focus on, what we find horrifying and why. Mm-hmm. I think the issues with targets comes from the the script again. It's a, it's a good idea. I just don't think it's really fleshed out. And yeah, 
I would not be surprised if some of that had to do with how quickly the script had to be turned around. And so there wasn't enough time to really like for, for Bogdanovich to dig deep and really consider the, the psyche of the, the killer and, and what's on the minor you know, of America at the time and how to juxtapose that properly with the, the icons of old, those concepts aren't really worked out in the script. The, the killer is entirely without motive. And the fact that he is without motive isn't even itself a motive for the script. And I think that's great. That's issue. It doesn't, it doesn't examine that idea. He just, kills and, and again it, it, it which would be fine i i don't need it to say oh he's a he, he's an army vet with ptsd or something mm -hmm. you know as, as some of the mass shooters at the time were or oh he's politically motivated by something or or whatever those would all be good things to have but you could also just say nothing he he is you know he is driven by nothing and i want to kill or anything or, or and that's yeah. and that's a horror in of itself but the film doesn't even examine that and it's just you know it's so, not even nothing yeah so it all feels very empty the whole exercise of the killer so when the film is constantly cutting away from all of the great boris karloff stuff examination of old hollywood you know dying out all of that fun charismatic stuff that's going on too with his chemistry between him and karloff on screen when it cuts away from that the film gets really turgid really dull and because the film is also shot on a shoestring budget and is trying to squeeze out as much as it can for a 90 minute runtime it just stretches out those scenes as long as it can just lots of uh footage of just the, sh the shooter walking all the way to his location taking the time to set up a spot loading up his gun making sure everything looks it's just very long very elongated sequences over oh, the course so of the film just to hit that mark <laughs> I think we do agree about like the overall quality of the film, but it sounds like we have different perceptions about the parts that work also. Um, oh, okay, do we? Because I think there is the shallowness of focus and connection between those things. But for me, the last 20 minutes are the best part, actually. The the whole procedure and the going through the motions of the shooting and laying the guns out and looking through and adjusting the scope. And um, I mean, it doesn't mean anything in the movie, obviously, but... Um, I think it's very well shot, well done, very tense. I, I think the film is is definitely tense, well shot. I just if if there was it would be so much more impactful, I think, if there was actual motive and meaning behind the the, the terror or, of the film. Or if he was killing someone that was named or I guess a part of the movie or you know, he's just killing passerbys, right? What if, the... uh, I mean I could I could sit here and spitball things. I'm like, what if he was trying to gain glory by hunting after Boris Karloff or something, you know? <laughs> then then you make a more actual connection but that's you know you're you're rewriting the the story at this point it's, it's not what the film is um i, I just wish it were something i suppose something it, I, more I than like, it is i like that it's about um you know the the relationship between you know the old hollywood and, and new i like how it's interacting with that that's obviously the thing that bogdanovich is most interested in as we'll see him kind of continue to investigate throughout his career uh and i like the concept of juxtaposing that with the killer i just don't think it comes to fruition even though it's shot very well i i like the location of the drive-in at the end mm -hmm. uh that's i think really neat i love how karloff comes and like like storms his way up to the killer <laughs> just bitch slaps him down at the end yes that's, that's pretty damn badass that's a great closing point on Bar karloff's whole career there 
I think we both like Karlov in it, and I think for just a few days, I think it, I think it did what it could with him. The, the Karlov liked the script so much that he agreed to stay for an additional couple days, so he shot for five days in total. As Still to, not too bad. So, yeah, not for for no additional money. So uh, he got along really well with uh, Bogdanovich, and Bogdanovich had plenty of nice things to say about Karloff. And Karloff is very funny in the film too. I like that one of the standout things to me rewatching this time was the scene where he scares himself in the mirror. <laughs> yes. <laughs> God, that made, that made me laugh really hard. And apparently that was that was Karloff's own idea. He added that to, to, to the script. I, Great I, idea. I love that. It's it's one of those things where it's like the film has lots of comedy in it in those interactions and stuff. And even though it's a very serious film, you know, it's got a serious subject matter. And I miss a lot of times in a lot of contemporary films that just take themselves way too seriously. There's not a, a moment for levity throughout. If there is, it's that uh, I don't want to say like marvelized levity, but it's that kind of like a, just, you know, pitching a joke that doesn't really, you know, yeah, like a pun or a what would you call it? Like a yeah, like a quip. A lot of quippy modern movies, but not ones that are inherently funny. Mm-hmm. And and again, like like to find time to like relax the tension so that you can stretch it again, because that's that's definitely thing. It's you know they feel a need to have this oppressive sense of you know tension throughout. And we've become very nihilistic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've, uh, yeah, we've become very existential beyond where they were in the 70s. And I think we're really feeling that in our modern cinema, where the yeah. only comedy are quips. Yeah, I was going to say, because I mean, the 60s and 70s themselves were maybe like peak nihilism in terms of what was actually happening in the world, in the country. You know, I, I think we're very jaded now. Yes, I, I think, think that's so. the difference. Jaded versus nihilistic. We don't always want to laugh anymore. Um, I guess. I don't know. I love to laugh. That's why I watch Trouble in Paradise. <laughs> Great movie. We should get to a Lubitsch watch someday. But oh, maybe. There's a. I think as we endeavor to go through so many movies, too, I think it is a good starting point. Targets where it will factor in. We talked a lot about like divining places in our rankings. I think that'll be a good marker of quality yeah. Bogdanovich. Uh, yeah, it seems that debuts tend to make, you know, like, you know, the, usually Good to judge a career. Debuts. Yeah. yeah, and they usually make a n- nominal impact. Uh, not too many directors have a, uh, a horrendous debut. They wouldn't get to make movies afterwards if they did. So, <laughs> And you find a lot of their pure interests, um, like, like Bogdanovich self-inserting there and talking about the good old movies and yeah. how there aren't any. Um, yeah. He was apparently he did not write that part for himself, just to clarify. Like it wasn't, you know. Like, <laughs> but throughout his throughout his career, he did write parts. Like especially when he was when he had someone he was dating in the film as well. Mm-hmm. He, he was like, I should play that part where there was. <laughs> <laughs> so there's definitely a little bit of like like self-absorption there. That, but I mean, at the same time, it's not unwarranted. Like uh, th- throughout the seventies, Bogdanovich was pegged a lot in media for his ego. And he definitely had an ego, mm-hmm. but it wasn't an unearned ego. You, know? you don't wear an ascot without an ego, is, uh, well, is what I always well, say. That's, that's another thing, I because I, I did listen. It's not an ascot. Oh, it, what is it? It's it's a handkerchief. Okay, just a uh, handkerchief tied around the neck. He said, I'd never wear something that pretentious. <laughs> 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 Which I love. Yeah, so it's a, it's a handkerchief. He picked that up 
wearing the handkerchief, that signature look that he has as a director from actually the next film he worked on, which was Last Picture Show. Okay. Yeah, there there is a bit of that in there, isn't there? Um yeah, it was it was just picked up from being on the set filming in Texas. Okay. Um, and and a, it was a look he liked and it felt comfortable. Kind of, you know, it hugs his neck, so he'll uh, he'll put characters in his movies with handkerchiefs, as we'll see within this episode. And uh I and sometimes the way people talk in his movies, Bogdanovich has a very particular way of speaking and writing. Like he has a very distinct voice and you could kind of feel him in, in all of his characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some characters definitely more than others, even, but he, yeah, not he quite yet here. No, but but sometimes in an almost literal way with with a number yes. of them. But uh, and then there are the cases where he's literally in the film, like in Targets or in several of his other films. The way he talks, he already has all the affectations down, which is very amusing to me and charming. He's it's very easy to see why he really rocketed to the top as a celebrity director. Yeah, of the of the seventies. You know, he he came around it just the right time where that kind of charisma, you know, could really lead where it was the directors who were selling, you know, the films there, there's like, it was a time again, where the, the director was the appeal of the movie for, for general audiences, like where they were the star of the trailers that you saw in the movie. Yeah. Movies. You it know, was the director showing you around the set. I mean, it was almost perfect for the studio to just failed to have such a colorful director to step in and become the movie themselves. It's um, yeah. You'd look back at like Hitchcock sometimes. He'd like just talk during the trailers. Mm-hmm. Like you got like a start of like that auteur like uh figurehead that uh overtakes what the studio interests are with or, Hitchcock. Or like his greatest idol, like Orson Welles, who yeah, he, who, Wells. who he aspired to be. Uh there's you know, he, he wanted to make his own Citizen Kane by 25 and he fell a little short. 27. <laughs> but then they started calling him the next Orson Welles with his next film with Last Picture Show. Last Picture Show was so huge. It was the biggest film in, in 1971. I see I see why it drew the comparisons because it's it does look like a love letter to the way Orson Welles made movies. Well, he, he advised Orson Welles explicitly on how to shoot it, like the, the particular way to get because he wanted that that exact look that he had for Citizen Kane, that deep focused look. And Orson told him, you'll never get it in cover. <laughs> it and, was, it is that very toll in like depth of focus look in mm-hmm. last picture show. Mm-hmm. And and that's definitely what he was going for to achieve that. And, and I think the cinematography is probably the greatest success of the film because what it does really well, and it had to be in black and white. And it's kind of surprising that the studios went along with it all he had to do was ask, apparently, but... Well, uh, imagine you, you, that today. Yeah. Right. There, there's a lot more black and white films coming out now today than there were in the 70s, certainly, but there probably wasn't, like, in, in 1971, there probably wasn't, like, a mainstream black and white film mm-hmm. for a decade. Or, or, or you know, maybe not, like, de- a decade, we'll say, a decade. Everything was colored by this point, because color had been the norm. Color was no longer the expensive, big-budget option. Uh but yeah, they made it black and white and they, they had to, I think they had to, because you wouldn't get that bleak, empty, desolate Texas town feeling in color. Wouldn't look it, right. Yeah, it's a really deep thematic tissue of the film where it's like that dying Texas town needs that that lack of saturation and color in it. Mm-hmm. 
Another thing that, that Wells told Bogdanovich was that black and white is, is the actor's best friend. Because <laughs> he, he told him, to, name me a film and uh, name me a good performance in color. I dare you. You can't do it. <laughs> That's interesting. Mm-hmm. No good performances in color. No good performances in color. None. Yeah, I think it certainly benefits a really good actor. And I mean, it's stylish and sexy just inherently to be in black and white. So. Yeah. And and stylish and sexy is the name of the game with Lost Picture Show because that's what it's it's all about. It almost yeah, not- becomes a, a little bit obsessed with its sexualization in in ways where I just I'm really in on Lost Picture Show for the first 30, 40 minutes. I always I, kind of fade out near the, the end. But- the problem with it, because again, we'll keep coming around to this. So so Last Picture Show, this is where we're gonna be controversial, I think. We're two movies in me and you're gonna be controversial about the Bogdanovich bibliography here and the the controversial take is that last picture show is not his citizen came and neither of us think that yeah it's so. it's a very good movie i think but it's it i think it's a little more hollow than it wants to be it's not this deep thematic work it's not this you know thorough uh consideration of like boredom and, and emptiness and vacant life you know, in small town, rural America in the 1950s and angst and, you know, the, the sexual proclivities of youth. It's all of those things, but it's those things on like a, a very like kind of surface, surface level. Yeah. It's just, it's just a bit under the skin there. It gets all of those and it wades in that for two hours. Yeah. And I think it's, it's subject. I think it's aesthetically like a throwback and considering all those things, it's an accumulation of all those ideas. I just don't think it's, thematically or um story driven in that way i think thematically it very much mirrors some of the you know the the sexual you know films of the 1950s you know uh you've got you know kind of like echoes of streetcar in desire in there i think with a little more like that a little more sex a little bit more nudity but more more explicit yeah because now it's the (laughs) 70s and we could show civil shepherds uh civil shepherds tits now so and it does i mean it yeah, Peter Bogdanovich would love to do that. So he does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the problem, I think, with the film comes that because it wants to wade in the subject of boredom and tedium and vacuity for two hours, it ends up becoming <laughs> boring and vacuous it's, itself after long enough. Though it does have some really great moments towards the end. Cloris Leachman's big Oscar-winning moment that mm-hmm. she has really great... Uh, I love that. I do love the the little the tip of the hat to Red River at the movie theater. So, I do you know, too. Personal um, thing for Bogdanovich. It's also thematically reflecting that movie's portrayal of masculinity, and a lot of it, a lot of you can't talk about Texas and the dying Texas town without the masculine layer there and the, the obsession with American male masculinity, which I think it draws a lot from Red River on. Yeah, I did like something that you covered in your review that kind of points out this kind of secular idea of this generation is the death or, you know, this is the death of our, you know, livelihoods or our, you know, way of living as we know it. And that just that cycle continues on that the, the youth <laughs> yeah. you know, are, are seeing the, the death of, you know, the, the good times. So to speak. Well, every generation looks at what the generation before them had and that they don't have and then they look at what they're where they're going. 
and they all say mostly white american males <laughs> it turns out in movies are saying that this is the end this is the last moment there's nothing left for the next generation the last one in ours is spin it but uh but then the next generation's going to say that same thing and the one after them i mean uh it's just a continuous cycle where that's all we're still saying but uh and that's a lot of what american art has been especially american and especially because we had so much land and then uh we compromised or we consolidated so much of it and uh moved in ways that we weren't expecting to over such vast portions of america um I think we I think we're face to face with that as like a culture cultural idea of where our art's going to. We're always obsessed with depth of America. I I will say one thing as well about it is that I don't like that there are some people who like to consider this a Western. Just no, I don't like, I don't think so. I think it has that, Western themes, but oh, it's it's got Western themes and, and aesthetics, but I don't think it's enough to ascribe it explicitly as a as a Western you know uh again just because it's set in texas and you know it's a desolate setting you know i don't think that really is enough <laughs> i mean write a film paper you want to compare it to a western but uh, i don't think genre wise we need to classify it and put that put it in I a just, western box i just feel like if you set a film in texas you risk some yahoo <laughs> calling it a, a western <laughs> it's and, true. And there doesn't have to be anything else about it that's western it's just yeah literally in the in west, the west yeah I I'd agree. I wouldn't say it's a Western. I'd say it draws a lot of parallels to, to good Westerns that Bogdanovich watched and is commenting on explicitly without gonna, making one of those. I'm going to start doing that. I'm going to go back and say Targets is a Western because it's set in California. <laughs> Every movie set in California, 90% of Hollywood making Westerns still. There you go. <laughs> I love to see it. Yeah, so Last Picture Show is a pretty significant film for Bogdanovich's career, but one we're personally less enthusiastic on. I like uh, it. it. Kicked up... <laughs> yeah, I know, I do like it. Uh, the problem I just... is I watch it, and I'm like, that's a gorgeous film that I, I don't really care about watching for two hours. Last thing is that I, I watched it recently and felt good about it enough to not rewatch it for the show then, because <laughs> I'm like, it's it, it can it does not feel like a enjoyable film to watch so much like I, I would never be excited to sit down and watch last picture show because it's very slow it's yeah. like kind of methodical mood piece that is a contemplation on mundanity and emptiness and that can be really tiresome a western yeah um it can, it can be tiresome <laughs> i think i got tired and this is my fourth or fifth time overall seeing it i think yeah i've, I've I, seen I it about that many tired. times too yeah it's enough i've seen it enough um but then, you know, my wife walks by, she's like, you look at the movie while you're walking past, you're like, that's a, that's a great thing to watch. But yeah. uh, actually watching it, you're like, ah, I'm always, I, lo I love parts. I'm always enamored with it when I see bits of, like, clips and stuff. I do, you know, I, I do think about the scene with JC at the pool where everyone's in. It's so good, her. yeah. That's, that's probably the highlight scene of the movie for me. I think it's really well done. It really communicates the emotions of that sequence of, of that scene. And it's so tense. Like it, it goes really quiet. And then she's like, just pulling off layers. The guy comes up in his uh, scuba gear or whatever. And mm -hmm. she throws her, uh, her panties or whatever on him or her bra. I forget, but yeah, just like that undressing and that like reveal of like the woman to right. the, the vulnerability boys. of that scene and the pressure, but also the, the desire to fit in with that, all, all of that. And those, you know, those themes of youth really resonate in that sequence. And it's that wave in the pool, just such a gorgeous shot that 
I just think about a lot. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of moments like that, like going into the diner that, you know, there are places I like to be in the movie, especially the old picture house I like to be in. The funeral scene, which was the first sequence Bogdanovich shot after getting back from his own father's funeral. Yeah. Which must have been heartbreaking. It's sure. also incredibly well done, well shot. He, he had a like talk about that, like how he shot it, uh, which was inspired from Hitchcock telling him to never use an establishing shot to establish something. Interesting. Yeah. And so he saves the establishing shot for the end of it. And that, and that gives it a much bigger impact where you kind of finally fully see the, the full picture of where you're at, where the scene is taking place in. Don't you just love the kids like sitting in the theater too? And like, like one of them's up on like the balcony level, just kind of like hung over the, you know, balcony watching the movie and kids are like sitting there taking their gum and, you know, necking in the back. And mm-hmm. it feels like an old picture house in a really beautiful way. Yeah. It's, it, it really gets the sense of the period and the setting, especially the old um, cars. Yeah. I like Bogdanovich yeah. always likes old cars. If he has a preference. Mm-hmm. It's just, yeah, I think the spaces in between, it uh, are a little hard to fill um at least on a personal note there are definitely many who claim this to be his his masterpiece i don't second film of the gate i mean i like seeing like baby jeff bridges but i don't really care about the young characters i don't i don't care a lot about of characters, the characters. There's, there's yeah. a lot of characters there's a big cast which feels like it's it's a hard time juggling at some points but there a number of them have have their strong points they have strong scenes throughout so. Every, yeah everyone gets a strong scene at least and it is it is a movie of strong scenes with a lot in the middle that i'm just indifferent to mm-hmm. but it's, all, it's also just a very important film for bogdanovich career-wise as well because of course this is where he met sybil shepherd and started his affair with her which would eventually break <laughs> up his marriage i mean uh excellent chapter on this one on uh what is it um plot thickens no, uh, the Raging Bulls book, the oh, Easy Riders Raging, yeah, Raging Bulls. Bulls. Yeah, mm-hmm. incredible chapter about them meeting and and the the fallout of their relationship and seventies Hollywood intertwined with that, and it is such a moment. It, it feels somewhat hard to pull away from Bogdanovich's personal life to just talk about his career straight up because it is so intertwined. So not only because obviously this is a huge turning point for him meeting Sybil, becoming involved in, in that, but it's also big in terms of splitting him with his, you know, collaborative relationship with his wife, Paul mm-hmm. Platt, who was the production designer on his first four films here, uh, but was also just a, a creative partner, you know, in, in the larger scheme of things and someone he would bounce ideas off of and who would contribute to him and they really, everyone who, you know, worked with them says that they were really like this dream team and this ideal couple and so it was always kind of sad that this uh rock star romance that he kind of engaged in with with Sybil kind of ripped that apart but uh I think ultimately that's just kind of what he was drawn to he never in interviews he seems to regret the fallout but not necessarily the action (laughs) it seems almost predetermined I mean if Sybil Shepard were on your set and you were that director but and it's not the last time we'll see that he got himself in trouble by with women becoming, yeah. becoming romantically engaged but he, he was a romantic that, that was kind of always his excuse for and he it. still seemed to view it romantically i mean he seemed to be a romantic to the end about all of the things that happened whether well, or not he regretted the fallout and he maintained like a relationship with sybil even after they they broke up and such so 
like obviously they, he was still very close with all of these and so he treasured the relationships with each of these women that he shared uh but it's it has been said that Platt and his collaboration was like the magic of the early films, so it is a shame going forward later on. Yeah, we'll see. Again, there's a they're distinct break. I do appreciate the format we have for these four episodes going forward because it's going to make for really nice chapter breaks because after Absolutely. we get to the fourth one here, things really change. So the next four films are quite different and there's a lot <laughs> different going on in his life. So this lines up really well. Yeah, for sure. And then we're going to get to some different, different stuff. And yeah, it'll be well, then we'll see. And we'll have to maybe find out some more on our own because there's less of his personal life in those later films. <laughs> we'll, be, uh, we'll be writing some of the histories for... Un uh, Uncharted Waters. Yeah, for like this Disney TV movie. Yeah. The saintly switch, we'll see. We're writing the history. It's ours to write. Um, right. Much like Peter Bogdanovich going through the old movies, we're going through made-for-TV new we're classics. We're taking up the mantle now. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, third movie, where third are we at? Movie is uh, so after the success of Picture Show, even before it made hit theaters, um, he was given the chance to make a a comedy. He wanted to make a comedy after this big dour drama. He wanted to make a throwback to all his favorites, his favorite Howard Hawks movies, his favorite Buster Keaton's, you know, the the Preston Surges. It's all all his favorite comic directors. He wanted to make a screwball comedy. Like like the good old days. So he made What's Up Doc. And fantastic movie. I just I said right after watching it, it's one of my it's one of the films I must like to see. I, I can't feel better watching a film than I feel watching it's What's so, Up Doc. It's so incredibly watchable. It's so charismatic. It's so smart. It's so smartly written. Mm -hmm. It's so entertaining. And I think it's so universal. Like there's a lot of films that I love that I, uh, I would not necessarily show to just anybody like family or whoever showed up people who aren't interested in movies as you know a medium so much as they are just two hours of entertainment. Grandma doesn't need to see Stella. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but What's Up Doc could play and does play with anyone and everyone. And you don't have to be immersed in film literacy you know, to be able to pick up on all like the reference points and the influences to just appreciate the the skill and the brio of Bogdanovich's comic shops here. So much of like Hollywood movies and like a continuation between like the old classics to uh, Bogdanovich to the Coen brothers. It's like these like missing and misplaced bag movies. <laughs> like uh, you're just chasing the bag and it's like four identical ba bags show up at this uh, musicology conference. Uh, he's studying rocks and um <laughs> i guess it's i guess it is studied like the the foundational like the first recordings were done on rocks like before vinyls before we had any way to commit to sound uh other cultures way in the past had ways to record onto rock shapes which is interesting but um not part of our discussion uh there's a uh, there's that interesting lineage about like the missing bag movie or like that that simple switch of just something going wrong or being misplaced or mistaken identities. Yeah, there's there's a perfect setup here, a perfect formula for chaos to really reign. And the four bags, the four identical plaid overnight bags, which each have different things in them. Originally, it was only three, but when the screenwriter Buck Henry came on to to punch up the script. He's like, uh, I, I, I'm afraid to tell you, I don't think this is convoluted enough. You're going to put it in the bag. <laughs> we like 
Buck Henry, we're a Buck Henry uh, proving podcast yeah. historically. So. so, so he added the one with the the secret files in it because the, the <laughs> Pentagon Papers had just recently happened, uh, which I think is a necessary element. I I I I definitely see how it wouldn't be as good without that that because, fourth bag. <laughs> because if it's just her bag and then his bag with the rocks and then jewels in them. I feel like the, those are all pretty mundane. And you no. might be able to follow it better. Like you might be able to tell what bag was what at that point. With four, I can't quite tell anymore. No, you, can, you can't, you know, even though they do a very good job of like showing Reminding you which, you, yeah. Yeah, which bags are where uh, whenever they kind of move around. The, the big thing is that you're not fixated enough. Like you're not concerned enough to know which bag is going to end up where because you're too busy like being bowled over by the comedy and the charm of everything going on here. We're focusing a lot on bags. This is uh, one of the great comedies. I like that the bags look like they'd just be like whatever was in season. They look fashionable. Like that would just be what's in that year. Of course, people would have the same bag. Yeah, they, they look very like very 70s bags. You never catch anyone <laughs> yes. wearing those those garish no. plaid bags nowadays. I wish, <laughs> but, but you wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I wish it were still in. Um, there's there's a lot of things like the things that date the movie are really just things from the time, like the hotel rooms, like yeah. exceedingly look like they're from the time. <laughs> Very <laughs> colorful. In the fashion, the yeah, there's uh, good fashion though. I appreciate it, and it it feels like Bogdanovich's touch there. It seems like how he would dress to is how our main character would dress. We we do get the handkerchief now. He uh, the the character there that Ryan O'Neill plays. Um, the musicologist Howard Howard Bannister yeah is very much very explicitly in the vein of uh, in the vein of Howard Hawks's um bringing up baby David Huxley uh the character played by Cary Grant there who's a so much better yeah yeah I uh we're uh confessed uh disavowers of bringing up baby our second most contentious take on this podcast yes (laughs) It's uh, His Girl Friday is the superior Hawks screwball film. We agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but very much so that the character here is is inspired by their, uh, Cary Grant's character there. From the glasses that he wears to the recurring gag in the beginning where uh, Barbara Streisand rips his suit as Catherine <laughs> Hepburn does in Bring a Baby. That's right. I, I, I mean, you just have to love the uh, meeting between them. I mean... Like that, he's just going in for some goddamn headache meds. He he just wants to get out of this this store, and uh, and, and suddenly she's behind this rock, and she gives the what's up, doc, and right. it's all over for him. The I I think this is one of the best interpretations of the concept of a manic pixie dream girl, uh, Barbara Streisand here, because she's yeah. such such an insane force of chaos. It's it's kind of really <laughs> hard to absorb all at once, like just. Even from the opening scenes where we meet her before she interacts with Howard, where, where she's watching the guy make pizza and and that makes the pizza get stuck to the roof, apparently. And then as she's walking across the street and then two motorcyclists crash because she's crossing the street. <laughs> she and is a just a of, force of chaos. Yes. There's a lot of moments like that throughout What's Up Doc. There's just these very unexpected, like kind of just bursts of, of slapstick that just really get me like the 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 motorcycle bit it's unprompted by anything it just (laughs) happens yeah (laughs) and it it happens again when she arrives like at the hotel and just like Mm -hmm. these cars like crash into each other (laughs) 
there's a lot of car crashing in the movie. And, and, and that's another big thing is that this has the scale and the budget and the ambition that these, you know, kind of modest, pre, you know, pre-code like uh, screwball films never could. It even pays off all the crashing later when four cars crash into the same van beautifully. Oh, yeah. Uh, put a pin and we'll come to the crash. We'll get to it. Uh, we'll get to that. Uh, there's uh, there's just something I love there, whereas bringing up baby just stresses me out and it's a very anxious comedy. There's well, something very lovable about the way that Streisand does it. So I'm happy to, to kind of weigh in on why I think this works here because I first watched What's Up Doc when I was watching a bunch of screwball comedies for the first time. And I wasn't sure at first with the genre, particularly with things like Bring Up Baby. I was just like, I feel like it's just too... Like like chaotic, nothing ever. A little too mad. Cat. Matters. the The thing is, the secret ingredient you need is that you need a grounding element. You need something to bounce all of this chaos off of, and that's what Ryan O'Neill is here for. Ryan O'Neill is Howard Bannister is here to be the grounding element to like centralize and contextualize what is chaotic. Because and he's trying have... to control the chaos constantly. Yeah. So that's what's so amusing about it is that he's trying to put a stop to it, and there's like that objecting force. You need a straight man for your your, your comedy, you know, in, in all cases there, because so, otherwise there's nothing to, you know, kind of centralize it around. You don't know what is supposed to be humorous or outlandish or, mm -hmm. you know, un, unreal. And so to have that kind of, uh, you know, barometer there really helps then to, and it allows the other character, allows Barbara Streisand to just go completely off the handle and be the most wild and unethical and you know, manipulative and wry and insane person imaginable yeah absolutely um i just enjoy the movie so much i like all the moments there are so many special moments in it and i mean it plays well with the setup of the musicology convention and uh, him his wife being mistaken or his fiance being mistaken for this new gal and uh, her frustrations around that very his, amusing to me. His fiance, played by Madeline Kahn in her first movie. She's first very movie. good, very and, good at being frustrated. Oh, she's so great in in this and and in the next film too. And she's such a, a a brilliant comic actress in like everything. She did a lot of films, of course, with Mel Brooks. She's got a great great part in Clue. Mm -hmm. uh, a favorite here. Everyone loves Clue. Flames on the side of my face. Madeline Kahn. <laughs> I, I just like when everything goes wrong. I like the small jokes too. I, I like everyone looking under the table with them when they, I when oh, they go I, down I to love chat. that bit. The, the, I love it. The, just like, that's one of the funniest moments to me is that, that when Barbara Streisand is just like, oops, I dropped my neck. <laughs> like, I, just, <laughs> I love the ridiculous fucking reading of that. It's great. <laughs> and it does so well with all that stuff it is going to be a movie where it's like we're just talking moments like these are things that happen in a movie because they're all so good it's it's hard especially with great comedy it's hard to just not repeat all of the funny lines and moments because they really yeah. just stick with you they really stand out and it's that's what makes it, them so great well yeah. it's, it can be hard to describe great comedy is hard to describe i can try and describe how the the pacing of the mania is really well built and balanced and the film knows how to like pull it back and have these moments of levity in between how to have these calmer moments in between the madness because the film does it and consistently builds up to an apex and then it kind of like relaxes and allows it to kind of settle and then it builds it up again because it you know first by the time you get to the end of all of the craziness that's going on in the dinner scene 
you've got that, but then it it has a has a you know reprieve. It stops for a bit, and then it builds up in the hotel room. The hotel room gets so insanely out of hand. <laughs> there are so many layers there. The whole room is on fire at a certain point. <laughs> like there's you know there's a naked woman practically running around in the room. Well, that's a, people fighting over bags. That's a great four bag moment where we have so many different things going that it's hard to follow them. Like there's two things going on outdoors, like. He's hiding the woman from his wife. They're going for the other bag so they could capture the bag while he's trying to turn that down the TV and then convince his wife that, you know, nothing's going on, but obviously something. Then the TV breaks, everything catches fire. You know, it's, uh, there's the whole bath thing. There's a lot of things going on that, that go wrong. And it's so well, all of it is, is these incredibly well-balanced elements because you have the chaos between uh, her and you and you know Howard there going back and forth while all of the bag shenanigans are happening in between all of this all of yeah. the four bags being moved around because there's the the guys are trying to steal the jewels see that's the that's the genius of it though it doesn't lose the plot and all that I mean in all the craziness it builds up to it's still making the case for what the movie actually is right and that's probably only like 40 minutes into the movie that and that climax happens that's a climactic yeah. point in the movie and there's still like another hour to go <laughs> and it and it only gets better it does it, it is a graceful build-up i like comedy. all of the side characters too it should be said not just like the named actors of, of repute that we've already mentioned here but like these people who were you know just these otherwise non-mentionable character actors you know whoever's playing like the main hotel crew fritz i think his name is yeah whatever or or the guy who's you know with, with the golf clubs who's trying to steal <laughs> the secret papers back yeah it, it just builds up again eventually to like just a great chase scene like it's just fun one of There's one so of the great fun. chase chase scenes i'm inclined to say one of the best chase scenes in any movies very and, and again kind of going back even further in its inspiration to the <laughs> likes of buster keaton and then harold lloyd in there mm -hmm. and they pick a really great location to do it i think it's another it's another film that uses its location incredibly well like the setting of san francisco is integral to the film yeah but particularly I by that end you can see a lot of like the Keaton or Lloyd when, I mean, like she's riding the bike and he's just on the uh, front of it, just sitting on there, which is a, a funny switch to do comedically. There's, there's a very explicit visual homage. I can see in my mind still where, where they're riding through, they're going down the hill and they go in between these passing cars. And that's taken straight out of a scene from Sherlock Jr. I, I can, yeah, I can, I can visualize exactly what that is. And of course, there's a great throwback. There's And there's a whole subversion of that, too, where it's in conversation with that, where you've got the classic gag of the glass pane, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bit at first with the cars there. And the whole idea is that you think, oh, they're, they're going to crash into it. It's like that classic bit. And it subverts that by having them evade it the whole time. They just barely get away. <laughs> and even as they come barreling back down... They, you know, they're, they're just, these cars are just almost swiping it. They're almost swiping the, the ladder there. And the last one just barely tips it and it knocks that guy into the glass plane. And it, and it gives you the payoff in an unexpected way. One of my favorites, other favorite, Ron Lawler run, where the guys keep getting their glass broken on reoccurring days in a Groundhog <laughs> Day-like fashion. Um, mm -hmm. I like, yeah, I like that close miss, but then uh, something trivial happens and then, you know, it's finally a hit. It's I, good comedy. 
not not to be a broken record, but I think one of the reasons why this the chase scene here works so well is because it's it's real, it's legitimate. Like these, there's there's no trickery done to make these car stunts seem any faster than they are. They are fast, yeah. It big. It's all done for real. It's real stunt work. And I think if if I'm remembering my trivia right, this is the first American film that credited the stunt performers oh, in, wow. its, in its credits. There, all all of the stunt people are listed in the credits there. So that was the the first occurrence of that that somebody did that that they credited the stunt people because obviously there's so much stunt work here. There and is, that, yeah. The yeah from that and all all the great slapstick because I mean I. The, kind of even just just getting too excited to get to the chase we forgot the <laughs> the calamity of the meeting of all of the bags where everyone yeah. finally gets together with all the bags and you have like the gangsters who are now in on it too i love the slide over the, the place slide over the floor they gets the bag then you go up to the guy with the gun i mean it's just yeah another layered comedic setup it's just so much chaos so much well controlled chaos that it's it's absolute absurdity utter absurdity and then again it all builds up into this amazing technically uh you know incredible climax that is also hilarious throughout with lots of little gags and big gags in between from them like crashing down those stairs which they right. most cer certainly did not get permits to film you can see the stairs literally falling apart as they're coming down them yeah uh, but but also just like the smallest like i love the bit with the where they're driving, where they kind of careen over the the wet cement, and the guy just <laughs> stomps on it, throws yeah. his yeah, it's throws, great. They're down. Great little moment to highlight for that guy. It's really funny. <laughs> he just walks off the job. It's it's good. Yeah. Or they're uh, it's really funny when they drive through the the Chinese dragon as well. And then and it, it connects to them, and uh, they just leave like the frame of it. Everyone looking confused while they yeah. fly down the hill as a dragon. Yeah, it's it's one of those films that's so great that it's hard not to just say it's the parts so great. that are great. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's like uh, you're almost at, at like a loss for words. The the only thing I'll say, I guess, again against it, which is just kind of personally solidified from this watch, is that I think it tries to wrap things up a little too cleanly, a little too mm -hmm. much. I uh, it goes on a bit after it reaches its it's apex it doesn't you know? need that clean of a denouement for all the chaos that's yeah, the, the, yeah the denouement there it's just a little too much and that's a big difference with where where it feels like a lot of the old screwball comedies they breach their high point they find their end punch line they hit it they cut to the end and that's it that's the yeah. end of the movie this keeps they go going. out on a high note and it, and it yeah and it really goes out it's got like a, a lengthy courtroom scene bit which has and and, and which the i like is still good <laughs> it's got it's got good jokes throughout it's very funny i like some of the wrap-up things and i think it does end on a good punchline, but i think it's very drawn out by the time it gets there it's not the high high that it was once they crash into the river you know, i still the, love it bay. at oh, that point yeah. though yeah all of it is good it's yeah. not it's not enough for me to like seriously be, be against it in any way it's just i feel like the film is like you know taking its bow at that point it's coming out a little little too much at the end i would i would have wrapped it up differently i guess yeah. the only thing you you do get an encore that that it wasn't really required but uh, yeah but yeah. it's a good encore i mean all this stuff's good i like the oh, yeah. courtroom scene so. well, it's on well, and and to a certain extent some of that stuff is necessary because i think for the emotional wrap-up you want the confirmation of the judge being judy's father you want yeah. the the 
uh, explanation that she's going on to his conservatory next and studying it. You want those bits to wrap up the romance aspect of the story. You know, so that stuff is all satisfying still, as well as all the bits of humor lidden in between. I, I also even like the, the, the love story reference, the, the yeah. love never means having to say you're sorry. Love means having to never say you're sorry. That sounds so dumb. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the dumbest thing I've ever... <laughs> which, it's which, of course, that's that was the tagline to the Ryan O'Neill film that made him so big, like, just before. So that's more of a contemporary joke. But it's still funny. You don't need to know that it's a love story yeah. reference. <laughs> it's still just as good not knowing. Mm-hmm. What's Up Doc is just generally just one of the funniest films just ever. Just my favorite rom-com type film, I would say. It's yeah. up there. It's just, it's so good. It's so brilliantly executed. I think and I said in my recent evaluation of it that I think this is Bogdanovich's opus. This is the culmination of all of the things that he loves, that that he wants to aspire to be, with a personal and innovative and pioneering twist on it too. Yeah, so I'd agree. It's, it's it's all of the old that he loves, but channeled through a, a new lens, a new perspective, new and twist. What's up, Doc? It's also close to like what I love about Looney Tunes. I yeah. should say, like in a less yeah, serious we- level. Uh, uh, we kind of skipped over the Looney Tunes of it all, yeah. Here, even though it's very explicit, you know, and and not only reference points, but in the damn title of the film. Yeah, and and the ending, of course, and yeah. yeah. But yeah, because obviously the cartoon influence is even predicated on all those, um, you know, earlier ones. The you know, uh, hell, the Bugs Bunny himself in the What's Up Doc is is inspired by Clark Gable. From mm-hmm. It happened one night, and of course, all of the slapstick is inspired by the comedians like Chaplin and Keaton and Lloyd. So, right. yeah, all of that is very intermingled together, and of course, the influence of that really culminate in this. And I think this is perhaps the best successor to all of that, the best you know product of all of that inspiration, really boiled into a, a true you know uh, a, a true entry into a genre that's that's long past. Which he does again in our fourth movie. Paper Moon. Paper Moon. That's right. A hell of a movie too. Yeah. This is this is another one that this is a really good story about. I think it might be one of my favorite stories where Bogdanovich talks about coming up with the name for the film. Because it was based on a novel. The novel was called Addie Prey. It wasn't called Paper Moon. That was Bogdanovich's thought. He he was going through like music from the time period. And there's this song, it's only a paper moon. Yeah. Um, and he liked it. And he thought it would be a good name for, for the movie. But he, he thought it'd be hard to sell. So, so he called up Orson Welles, who's editing a film in Rome. It's like, and it was hard to say. He was like, hey, Orson. He's like, what? What do you want? I'm, I'm busy. And he's like, I just need you to listen to the name for this movie. What do you think? Paper Moon. And, and Orson says, that title is so good. You shouldn't even make the movie. Just release the title. <laughs> it is, too. I'm it's glad you released a movie with it. But it is such a great title. I went and saw this film in the theaters just this last week for, you know, as, as a kind of retrospective for, you know, Bogdanovich just passing. And I think if you're going to pick another film aside from Picture Show, probably too, you know, sum up Bogdanovich's whole career or find like a high point on it. This is the other choice that I think most people would go for. And one I would more so agree with in terms of being a, a, a real highlight, high point 
and watermark of his career. I'd rather point people to What's Up Doc in this than Last Picture Show, for sure. Oh, they, they also just seem to be more emblematic of the kind of films that he's interested in making, the kind of movie that he uh, loves, and, and an appreciation of the movies that he loves in turn, you know. Um, I, I feel at heart he's a comedian, you know, probably more than a dramatist, but Paper Moon feels like a good combination of those factors. You know, the, the sincere, heartfelt drama and period consideration of Last Picture Show, but the comedy and charm and, you know, character that is really uh, embodied and, and cinematic influence that's embodied in What's Up, Doc. It's, it's kind of like a, the best of both worlds there that you get. And again, another universally appealing film. There's a, a, a young child sitting in front of me at the movie theater, and I was very excited for him to get to see this. I think this oh, is sweet. great. I think this is a great film that, that kids will appreciate as well, and particularly identify because it's a film centered around a child protagonist. Well, we both had seen all the movies, and the last one, this one, are the two that I moved up on the most, I would say. Uh, just very, very charmed throughout. Again, I, uh, having seen more Preston Sturges now, kind of the same effect that I like about those. Mm-hmm. I imagine you have an especial connection to this film, it being a father-daughter father daughter yeah. story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very different one too than the the kind we just see at the cinema now, which are very boring, uh, boring ideas of like men could only feel when they have daughters. Whatever. Uh, why not just have fun and and show a father daughter relationship where she's like part of the, you know, part of the gag. She's in on the, you know, well, he's going door to door. He's like selling these Bibles and she soon finds out that he's printing people's she, names on them. Yeah, yeah. Them. I mean, you say selling Bibles as if he's just like a regular old, you know, door to door salesman. salesman. He's, he's targeting widows and using the guilt <laughs> yes. of that their, their survivor's guilt to upcharge them on cheap ass Bibles. And when they find out that their loved one uh, ordered one for them, of course, you know, even the non-religious will have to say, yeah, I want to find out why. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's he horrible. Makes, yeah. No, it's horrible, but hilarious. Yes. <laughs> and it's all about the framing of that and how that's up. And especially in the first scene in which that that is depicted, where you're just you're listening to his pitch while you're watching Addy kind of like react and figure it out and and like finding like the stamps in the back of his car while all this whole scene plays out it's it's all scripted with like this great comic brilliance and it's all so well depicted there how this how this grift can be hysterically tragic like like again it's been some good like dark aspects to that there that, that's really nice there's just the natural feeling that you have like around your own kid too. Just like the Ryan O'Neill, Tatum O'Neill thing. It's just, there's, there's just a way fathers are around their kids that, that people just can't act in a way. Yeah. Um, and it, I think it's a testament to Bogdanovich's directorial prowess as well. Like as much as you want to, you know, it, as, as we should look to credit some of his other contributors as much as recently has been done to highlight the work of his wife as a contributor and mm-hmm. partner is a relationship the directorial talent you still have to ascribe very specifically to bogdanovich particularly in his care of working with a child actress and how you're able how he's able to pull such a nuanced and and you know, complex performance from her, very uh, almost adult performance from her even, you know, 
uh, from yeah. this very troubled kid. And it's not just the smoking on the bed. I mean, she's getting, you know, a lot of adult depth just from the emotion she shows and how she's directed to feel. There's a great scene with, with her where she's like looking past through all her mementos from her past, you know, her mother who's passed trying on the earrings and posing like her in the mirror and such. <laughs> and it's got this like sweet, this bittersweet kind of like melancholy to it. That reminds me of a scene in John Ford's The Grapes of Wrath in particular. Oh, yeah. reminded me of. Uh, it's like the, the messaging of those scenes is a little different, but the framing, I think, is, you know, similar in what, in what it's trying to convey. And obviously, being a great student of Ford, uh, I, I can't help but be sure that was intentional from Bogdanovich. Yeah, like the bits with the kids going in and getting the candy and everything feels very inspired by Mm -hmm. it's, uh, another, it's, it's another film that's shot in black and white i think that should be said as well yeah um an another choice to kind of return to that medium uh to to mine the essence of the time in, in, in the same inspiration that he wanted to show the the desolate uh setting of you know the, the middle middle america 1930s midst of depression Talking about how how Frankie Roosevelt's gonna pull everyone out. <laughs> yeah, I I like the escalation too. They can't just leave it at the Bible selling, of course. Even as she escalates it, they have to go on to the um, bootlegging and uh, and upcharging people when they when they pay for things, switching right, up the, bills. The the, the the doing the twenties and stuff, switching that around. Yeah, the five ten bill. Yeah, again, just, just kind of like any any of those good like like kind of like like grifter movies like that like i think we talked about it with like the sting as well it's just it's really satisfying to watch those, those <laughs> because it's like magic. the transaction it's like, yeah it's like watching a magic trick and learning about how the magic trick works you know there's something very very fascinating and very entertaining about that so you know learning about the various ways they try and take people for their for their money is just in, in inherently entertaining uh Despite that, though, I think my favorite segment of the film is where they're doing no grifting at all, which is where they're distracted by Miss uh, Trixie Mattel, again, oh, yeah. by Madeline Kahn, because I just think she's so, she's so funny in this movie. She is. I love, I love her character here. I love the scene, especially where she goes to talk Maddie into, uh, talk Addie into coming back to the car, and then she, and she tries to connect with her on, on this kind of woman to woman level and they're because it's it's hysterical the dialogue itself is hysterical and well it's great because she she drops that like hi you know like uh what would you call it a, a strange accent that she's putting on and she just yeah. talks like a regular person yeah yeah well, well she's and, and, and it kind of starts with her walking up to it that you can tell she has this very put on like persona there and it drops like this this very like kind of like composed you know very womanly nature as soon as she trips on her way up she's just like oh son of a bitch <laughs> it's, it's just entirely gone like the facade of her drops entirely in those moments and it's really funny and she's so hilarious but but there is a, a, a sincerity to the sequence as well how she's trying to connect with her and communicate yeah. to her this this her own personal like vulnerability that that she feels in that how she knows that she's going to mess up this relationship with Hattie's father, you know, somewhere along the lines, and she just wants to enjoy the time she has for what she can. 
and and seeing that vulnerability, you see Addie kind of take pity on her essentially and go along with it because you know she she knows how pathetic uh, I suppose she she really is and how even Trixie herself understands that. <laughs> but it doesn't stop her then from meddling later on and and she's just oh, another bullshitter, yeah. Really, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Is that you know, much in the same vein, she's grifting in her own sense, using her her looks and her her big tits, as she says. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's got their grift, and of course, like Addie's just drawn to whatever the grift is. Um, I mean, once she has to face normality, you know, even though the grifting occasionally leaves her alone on a paper moon, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. the grift is more exciting in the chase than normality and apple pie that is that is a really nice scene they fit in and they did it just to call the movie that too just that little it's bit it's excellent yeah yeah but it has they they work it in really well and has that nice payoff at the end with the photograph it works really well and and really it's just there to justify the title <laughs> it's good <laughs> uh we've also discussed this on a podcast before did we do did what's we- up doc Doc no, also? no, uh, we've only done Paper Moon. I that's believe. insane. I feel like we've done What's Up, Doc, and and Paper Moon, but we've done well, Paper Moon. They've been sure. they've been such essential films for both of us that I think uh, it, it certainly felt like it. Like we were going to get to What's Up, Doc before this. I think at some point it was it was going to be inevitable. So, but doing it yeah. this way, I feel like is is just as gratifying. I'm, I'm glad they cover them both. I have endless affection for for both of them i think they're such magnificent films real uh high points you know real marks of quality for any director's career let alone bogdanovich's yeah if you want to hear us talk more on paper moon we do have an episode devoted to that and we will get to raking it in a minute here Uh, should we take a few minutes break sure we'll come back with the ranking yeah let's uh rank these bogdanovich's great I think uh, very much like our first ranking with uh, Catherine Bigelow, first episode there, I think this one's going to be pretty easy. I think we're going to be pretty much on the same page. If you haven't skipped through the whole podcast, I think it'll be pretty clear where we land specifically on uh, what we're defining these rankings as. Nevertheless, let's uh, get into it. So, targets. Yeah. targets? Uh, first and last place, I say, yeah. for now. Easy, but, easy place to start. Is that I, controversial? I don't think so. I'm in full agreement with you here. First and last place. <laughs> uh, first joke, and last place. This joke will targets. not get old for any of the preceding <laughs> podcasts for you. Picture uh, show. Last picture show. Now we get controversial. Or do we? I, I think it's better than Targets. I think you could find more in it. I think I, I think I like it as much as Targets overall. I might put it just a, a notch above Targets. I'm going to be more inclined to watch Targets again, but there's just a lot of, like, even more, like, like actual emptiness in Targets, like, where it's, mm-hmm. like, you're, you're just filling the time. And half of it, I feel like, doesn't gel with the other half, whereas I can't say the Picture Show isn't a coherent whole. It definitely is. I see why people like Picture Show so much. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm on the good side of it. I don't think it's a bad movie at all. So I think, I think it's definitely better than Targets. Okay. Uh, I could be okay with that. What's up, Doc? Um, non-controversial, or is it controversial that we're putting it ahead of picture show? It might be, but uh, it's definitely not controversial to me. No, I mean, I like I said, I, there's nothing I'd rather watch and 
and I'd feel better about watching. So I could just watch it endlessly and I could show it to people. I could have it on. It's it's just one of the most inevitably likable films I've seen. Just just so full of joy and energy and verve and so much the the kind of uh emblem of what Bogdanovich wants to be as a director, I think. Just so much fun, just builds up so many times to a great um, great climax as a comedy, well balanced, great characters, good side characters. I, I like everything about what's up, Doc. Even as we both might agree that goes on too long and gets an unearned uh, encore. Man, I, I think get, uh, that's, all that's, that's really good. Like, that's that's me looking for a complete ultimate. Like that's me offering a critique. A critique. <laughs> I moved it up to a perfect ten this time, so it'll be hard to to topple. I think so. What's up, Doc? Number one. And it might stay that way for a number of episodes or well, all of the episodes. I, I, I guess the only one that could compare is Paper Moon. Paper Moon. Yeah, I think Paper Moon makes an excellent second, very clearly above uh, the other two for me. Um, I think the only conversation is how you feel about Paper Moon and what's up, Doc. Yeah, I, I agree certainly that Paper Moon, that there's a big gulf between Paper Moon and Last Picture Show in, in likability. I think all of the things that I like about uh, Last Picture Show also tend to exist in Paper Moon. Um, and I think a lot of things that are I really love about What's Up Doc also exist in Paper Moon. But I feel that the, the one critique I will lay against Paper Moon is that it does, it feels almost episodic. I don't feel like all the pieces are stitched together quite as well. I don't like when children smoke. But... <laughs> that's, that's fair. That's a fair thing, too. Um, yeah, I mean, so well, she, yeah, she's good at smoking. Um, so there's, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have to go with what's up doc based on my rating but i don't know if you want to make no, that move no 100 percent. i was i was concerned going into this that it was going to be a, like we were going to have to dispute the show down here too, that that paper moon was going to be above what's up doc for you i but think originally it was i think i think it was but um and because there was so much more of a personal connection to i would have figured but this last rewatch seems to really have shifted that and really put it into my favor here because what's up doc is uh just one of my favorite movies just you, generally you act like i'm off running uh crimes with my daughter uh you keep saying <laughs> personal connection like this is my life story no just my my understanding going into this not not even just explicitly the daughter connection but it is a film i you know I, from our previous conversations on it i remember it being very you know personally touching for you yeah not, not just the daughter element but more i so think the, still the, I think another thing you could say if you wanted to say completely uh, against what's up doc is that like it, it doesn't have a message to it that's you know? <laughs> true like if, if you need to feel like something emotional what's up doc is not going to like do that it's it's well, you know brilliant like technically and and you know comically you know it's it doesn't have like heart like paper moon does i think paper moon is the more touching film for sure but that doesn't make it the better one inherently um i mean it, Paper Moon has a great story, too. Yeah. yeah, but What's Up Doc is still the victor for me at the end of the day, because it's the film I want to come back to time and time again. It could be hard putting comedies up against other things, but at least this one also very comedic elements, very funny movie throughout. It's, um, it's also it's just one of the best comedies, like, period I've seen. Again, up there with the likes of the films that Bogdanovich is homaging here. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he really earns his place amongst the masters that he 
owes so much to. He's one of the few that gets to replicate and match, I think, those original sources. I don't think anyone else even really came close. Yeah. And again, and in his distinct original way, it's not just uh, a repetition. He's not just utilizing their formula. It's never pastiche of of old things. It's always, yeah, original ideas based on, you know, images and cinematic ideas that we already had. Mm -hmm. All right. I think that's a proper ranking then for now. So the first four Bogdanovich films are What's Up Doc, Paper Moon, Last Picture Show, and Targets really strong uh four that we're starting yeah. with honestly and and if i recall right you're in the dark from here on out yeah it, this is all i've seen i've seen all these before so these are all rewatches but nothing else uh the rest is a journey i've seen a uh, tom petty now uh that's it right but that's that's what he's in the future now for as far as the foreseeable future of his trajectory you have no idea what's coming no um i mean i know what the movies are i know about saint jack because of the because of the tcm podcast but but no i don't know (laughs) so the next next slate is the rest of bogdanovich's bogdanovich's films in the 70s from this point on he's divorced from his wife and he starts making films of his own uh i should note that paper moon was made as part of a deal with a new production company he was teamed with Francis Ford Coppola and William Friedkin to make the director's company. Mm-hmm. And they basically just had like the deal was that they had a blank check to make any film they wanted as long as it was under like $4 million and they could make anything, they didn't need any, uh, any other approval or anything. So Paper Moon was made under that and made them a ton of money. And uh, that's also when um, Coppola made the conversation. The conversation was made under the director's company. Coppola and, would be good to do. Um. Yeah. And, and he made his next film under the director's company. Uh, and, and then it's shut down. So that's a little bit of teaser for how the next stage of his career is going to go. Yeah, the next one, another very distinct stage. So uh, excited to watch everything for the first time. Yeah, so we will be returning to you next week with those films, as well as a bevy of other Twin Geeks related content. What do we have from us, Cal? I should announce first that we're relabeling the uh, rap music, hip hop music podcast that we cannot get right that I'm, I've gotten I'm wrong gl- on multiple podcasts. Is it is it a less uncertain name? Yeah, it's a uh, hippity hoppity. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're doing eight oh eights and heartbreak or eight oh eight. I already got it wrong. God, eight oh eights and pod breaks. 808s and pod breaks. Okay. Um, Referencing the 808s, the synthesizer drum things that are looped into a lot of rap songs and Kanye's album, 808s and Heartbreaks. Okay. Well, hopefully we'll remember that one a little bit easier. I just got the. Apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's just tradition. Um, that will allow us to do other things than the Source and XXL's uh, top rated rap albums. Um, we're going to go into just uh, personal favorites and uh, bring each other 10 out of 10 albums that we both love. That'll allow guests to come on too, because there's such a distinct focus on the show that we kind of uh, pigeonhole what we'd be able to talk about. And we're going to expand it a bit and just talk about the best of rap and hip hop. So it'll be a lot more interesting. They'll allow us to do more Kanye albums, which we both want to do. We're both huge Kanye fans and uh, touch on some others. It'll allow Kendrick possibly to get in the Hall of Fame because Kevin denied Kendrick's entrance with his first album, Ooh. which I'm very uh, 
very torn up about so necessary changes <laughs> that sounds good so uh keep an eye out for that it's a uh, 808s and pod breaks again for those who already forgot <laughs> it's a cool name it sounds like it. no cooler. no i like it i just uh i'm, I'm committing it to memory now 808s yeah. and pod breaks 808s so and pod breaks. that's officially changed that's on all the services i'm changing all the site names over but yeah uh something to look forward to there and uh we also have Daydreamcast returning next week, I Is believe, week? the week oh. after, next two weeks. Okay, uh, I'm glad, I'm excited. I'm excited to finally have it back. It's been it's been a long time. Me too. It's been a little tumultuous, uh, but yeah. finally they're hitting the road and we got some interesting new changes, but I won't, I'll, I'll let them get to it. And I'm excited to see what they're going to have in store. I announced it on another show, which just won't be out until that episode's out i think or at least that week so uh but i i guess i surprised our co-host because i didn't know anything about the change um no. and uh i'm thinking of spoiling things as always i'm on there with licorice pizza and that'll be that episode which is a uh, uh, just chaos at the end oh uh, no just, i like <laughs> I when i like when everything breaks completely and goes off the rails none of us know the sign off for the show i won't spoil anything about the spoiling show other than that <laughs> I, I, that should be an interesting one anyway, because uh, I know it's it's a bit contentious between your uh, unrivaled love for it versus Stephen's trepidation. And Vaughn's just general like of it. And he's an enthusiast of all things, so that makes sense. Um, there's uh, Do we have other podcasts? We do. The Motor and Cast, which I recorded right before this one, uh, yeah, will be going can't up. Forget, can't forget the, don't forget the Motor and Cast. What's the film? Isn't This is the third one, or is this the second one? This one's called Sammy. This is the third episode, I believe. Okay. But uh, yeah, it'll be good. Um, there's, we have a little discomfort with the characters, so it'll be our first like formal critique of that. So, uh, Matt Farley, if you're listening to this and that, we apologize in advance, but we gotta do our job. Can't can't apologize for the Chris. Although I suppose you would do risk alienating now. We're gonna lose our end theme song because of you guys. Yes, so we do have to apologize technically because your your goalie is out of the show. In just a moment. Um, do we have other shows? I feel like we. I think that's it. I think that's it for now. Uh, so just tune in next week and keep an eye on the website, thetwingeeks.com, for all kinds of reviews and retrospectives and features. Less of those other two now. More, more yeah. reviews and a lot of reviews. Uh, we did Sundance, uh, a lot of Sundance content going up. Cool. Um, I like some anything, things. A, a, anything notable from Sundance? Give me, give me one recommendation. I like Fire of Love. It's about uh, two people who fall in, into love and then they fall in a volcano. So. <laughs> cool. Yeah, they're Sounds volcanologists cool. and they, uh, you know, really love each other and they don't really like other humans. But it's so it's like a suicide pack. No, it's a documentary. <laughs> what? Oh, oh, yeah. oh, okay. That's, about, that's a little darker now. I thought it was like a, I thought that was like a punchline. Oh, well, they they all live so close to volcanoes. They just knew they'd go one day, and eventually they do. But uh, it's about their love and uh, how they weren't really interested in filming things, but obviously they have a lot of cinematic techniques. So I have a review I'm pretty f- fond of going up on that. Um, yeah, Vaughn's got a lot of good stuff too. After Yang's probably the bit most celebrated movie of Sundance, which I haven't seen, but he reviewed beautifully. So fantastic. We'll keep all your eyes out for that. I just read a good review from Stephen too that should be up on the site. Or it is up on the site. Yeah, because I read it today. Yeah. This is his uh 
Moonfall review. Moonfall. <laughs> <laughs> what a disaster. Oh, yeah. But the movie, not the review. Um, <laughs> yeah, but Emmerich, I think we, I think we know. Uh, I thought it was hilarious that he was like bagging on Marvel the other day, but I mean, even Marvel has more creativity than like the the birth of his movies. He's, he's since revised his Eternals opinion slightly after has seeing. He? Oh yeah, he, he he at least said Eternals has something to it, which I'm going to take <laughs> as as a complete turnaround, a 180 on his take there. So he's in in the wake of Moonfall, Stephen <laughs> has gone pro Eternals. <laughs> you could follow him at Zero Zebra uh, <laughs> on Letterbox. Uh, you can find us on Letterbox. I'm at Calvin Kemp. Uh, I review too many things. Uh, I think my mine is. Because I, I put my username in a while ago, so it's it's a bad one. It's uh, I think yours is Bill Mike Gallows. Yeah, but hi is it like a hi, not not like a full name because it didn't take the whole username. Embarrassing but endearing too. Oh well, well now you know now now you know my dirty username secrets. <laughs> I don't think you could change them. Um, Unfortunately, I would if I could because uh, although I'm, I'm using my real name and everything else. So. Although, isn't that how he got the Zero Zebra name? Because uh, Vaughn changed to at Zebra. We're plugging all our friends now on Letterboxd. So maybe it is possible. Maybe you can. Uh, maybe so. we'll, we'll look into it and we'll get back to you next week. How about that? Uh, just write the folks who, who know. And we'll see. All right. Thanks so much, man. Uh, pleasure again. Looking forward to next week. conversations and I post them online for entertainment it's nice to know at least you listen to the show because it's quite the possibility that nobody is listening to me in this modern world things have changed everybody's entertaining who's being entertained